Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So welcome to episode 13 of uh, the Core Kinetic podcast. Um, and as usual, I had to think about which number we were at. It would be much more comfortable if I remembered which number podcast we were doing and which order and all these other things, but I'm prone to being forgetful. Um, I have a really special guest with me today, someone that um, I have a great amount of respect for, uh, a colleague. I'd like to think of my next guest as a, a bit of a friend as well. We've, we've spent a lot of... Uh, time discussing things over the past year or two years so um welcome to the podcast mr peter stillwell <laughs> thanks so much um appreciate appreciate the invite and yeah excited to to talk today yeah i don't like to let, let my guests do too much talking peter because obviously <laughs> you know i i find it very very hard not to speak um that's actually a joke it's it's everything is for you today it's all about you it's not about me at all no no yeah as no. much as that hurts my ego <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll both talk yeah well maybe i'll, I'll pitch some pitch some uh questions back at you or We'll see how it goes. Oh, that's not in the deal, Peter. <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. Um, but let go on. You dive in, and why don't you tell us who you are? Because that would be good for everybody to know. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my name is Peter Stowell. I'm a postdoc researcher at McGill University, so that's in in Canada. Um, I got a kind of a weird eclectic background. I got a, a variety of interests. So, um, initially did a bachelor of kinesiology, so that's like anatomy, biomechanics, like human sciences. Um, uh, grew up skateboarding, had a variety of injuries and saw different healthcare practitioners. And I saw some chiropractors that were, were definitely not on the evidence-based side of the spectrum, but I also saw some that were, uh, quite reasonable, like just treat adults with, uh, MSK conditions, focus on exercise and, and education. And I was like, it seems like a, like an, an awesome profession. So, um, ended up going to CMCC in Toronto. So I did a, a doctor of chiropractic. And um, yeah, started practicing on the east coast of Canada. And then right soon as I started practicing, uh, I did a master's in rehabilitation research and, and physiotherapy at Dalhousie University. So I wanted to essentially do a little bit of everything. I was like, well, I'll do clinical practice. I'll, I'll, I'll teach and, uh, and I'll do, do research because I had interest in, in research or like exercise adherence, interest in pain. Um, and so did that master's degree, uh, and really started to like the research components. So went straight through pretty much and did a, a PhD, um, in, in health. So it's like a very kind of interdisciplinary new PhD program at, at Dalhousie, Dalhousie university. So I was one of the first to, to graduate from that program and lots of kind of flexibility with that. So, um, got to explore a variety of topics during the PhD, mostly focused around, uh, uh, pain and, and, and clinical communication. So patient, patient clinician communication. And, uh, during my PhD transitioned out of clinical practice, just cause I had a lot of different research opportunities that I wanted to, to engage with. And yeah, I've been, been running with the research, uh, over the last little while and we'll, we'll see where it takes me, but, um, I've been enjoying it so far. Yeah. So I think a lot of people will have seen your work, and you're kind of probably more on the philosophical, 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 I'm not even sure that's a word, but we'll <laughs> run with it, the philosophical side of things, right? So it's interesting to hear that you've kind of come full circle, or not full circle, it's like an almost two ends of the spectrum from this biomechanical background all the way over to all this philo philosophical stuff. Yeah, it is kind of weird, and I don't know really know how it happened but uh, it was just my interest in pain um so originally when i was like going to do the masters and and the the phd i thought i was gonna originally i thought i was gonna be like hardcore quantitative researcher and the more i learned about pain I, like 
people endorsing it as a subjective experience, people emphasizing the, the narratives of people with, with pain and the importance of that kind of lived experience. And I was like, is, are these kind of obviously quantitative approaches are important. So people study pain related mechanisms and um, different kind of epidemiological studies, all that stuff's important. But I was like, uh, how can we get closer to that subjective experience? And um, that's what drew me to qualitative research. And, and qualitative research uh, is often paired together with philosophy. So you're really encouraged to think about your, your underlying assumptions, your philosophical stance. And that's when I started to get into like that ideas like embodied cognition and, and activism and just went down this rabbit hole and it never came out of it. <laughs> so, and so people are like, what people call me like a philosopher. I'm like, I'm not a philosopher. And maybe I, I more see myself as like a qualitative methodologist. Um, I do empirical work, like uh, qualitative research, but I also engage in these uh, kind of conceptual, conceptual papers, philosophical kind of style papers. So it's kind of weird. I don't know what, how to, where to position myself or what to call myself, but yeah, <laughs> a mix, a mixed bag. Yeah. No, well, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think to have experienced, you know, different types of education in different areas, you know, helps us appreciate the challenges that, that, that you kind of face, you know, and, and, uh, and I, th- you know, I think that probably makes for a well-rounded uh, perspective. You know, I think that that's something sometimes people don't always have. They're, they're very much focused um, in kind of one area. But I'm, I'm a little bit like you. I really enjoy the, um, you know, the more qualitative type of stuff, the lived experience type of thing. Um, but I don't know if people hold it in quite as a much esteem as this, you know, hard quantitative you know very kind of empirical um science in the same way i find that a little disappointing sometimes that 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 side of things isn't seen as as important sometimes as 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 the more quantitative yeah i think it's changing like at least it's been changing even since i started the master's program so like I started doing qualitative research and nobody in kind of my, my cohort and people in the, in the circles that I was in, like were, were doing qualitative research and they thought it was like super unusual and different. And, and now everybody's like uh, wanting to do it, like uh, more qualitative research coming out of Dalhousie. Uh, a lot of the quantitative researchers are now doing qualitative work, doing mixed methods work. So um, people's perspectives, I think are, are changing, changing yeah. on it. Um, but uh that's what I always appreciated with you is like, I, I've noticed you've had this affinity to like the social sciences and like the, the qualitative studies. And so I, I remember reading your blogs like many, many years ago. And I was like, oh, this is like such a, such so refreshing. Um, Cause people often talk about like, it's like, yeah, I go to pain conferences. Right. And um, the whole time I'm like, we just, after two days, I'm like, nobody really talked about pain, like the subjective experience. People talked yeah, about yeah. cellular processes, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, neuroanatomy, these types of things. And I'm like, maybe we're missing, <laughs> missing some elements. And I've always appreciated that you've had that on your radar. So uh, that, that always excited me, yeah. Well, well, I appreciate you saying so. I, those, I think, were probably the blogs that no one read apart from you, though, Peter. <laughs> and and no, this is no, something no. that I've always... You know, this is, and from a very, very limited perspective, you know, when I when I post up something that's, you know, about biomechanics or whatever, you know, I always look to see how popular that is versus more of the, you know, lived experience type of stuff that I've posted about. And it always, even before I press the button to post something, you know, that's more qualitative in nature, um, I am always thinking to myself, this is going to flop in comparison to some of the other stuff. And then I suppose these are my own social experiments. And I and people talk about these pendulums, don't they? The, the biopsychosocial pendulum swinging and knocking people over and whatever else it does. <laughs> um, but I truly think when, when this pendulum has swung, as people suggest it has, is when we're seeing you know, these type of lived experience, qualitative stuff being at least as popular as some of the more biomechanical stuff. Yeah, that, that'd be nice. And yeah, I guess 
my always thoughts is like, there is no pendulum. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're just making, we're just kind of making that up. Like just kind of making these false, uh, false dichotomies, like pain science and biomechanics on the other side. I, I always thought that was kind of unusual or people talk about like physical pain versus emotional pain. And I'm like, what does that, what does it even mean? Like, it's so confusing, confusing to me, but um yeah. Anyways. <laughs> well, I suppose that's just human beings, isn't it? I suppose yeah. that, you know, science, I think, is often about categorization and, you know, and these type and putting things in these discrete, measurable entities. And I think that's just been expanded, you know, into some of these philosophical concepts. And I, you know, we've talked about this many times in the past that maybe even the biopsychosocial model evades things like you know, measurement and classification in its very essence, you know, as a, as a philosophical tool. Um, I don't know whether any, anyone else would have found those conversations fun apart from us. <laughs> you know, normal people talk about normal stuff. We just get into, you know, maybe some stuff that's way too deep. But anyway, so I am going to dive in and talk about what seems to be a subject that you've really kind of taken as a little bit of your own over the last couple of years and you've released some really fantastic papers this idea of inactivism um and in inactivism isn't something actually really spectacularly new is it you know and in how, how long has inactivism been around for yeah so kind of more formally uh, proposed in 1991 um so people often point to this book the embodied mind. Um, so uh, Evan Thompson, Francisco Brella, and Eleanor Roche. Um, so th those are the authors, and um, that's where they kind of introduced this idea of an, an active approach. But they were they were drawing from uh, a, a rich, rich kind of history, rich theoretical foundation. But um, it's only been kind of more recently um, been on people's radar, um, and, and it's just rapidly increased since I started exploring the concept. Like the number of papers coming out now on uh, an active approaches to a variety of things, um, an active approaches to playing music, to, 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 to depression, anxiety, pain, like, um, mathematics education, like all, it's being applied in all these different ways. And, um, I can't keep up with the literature anymore. Like, uh, originally I was like, Oh, here, a paper came out here and there, like with these interesting applications. And now it's just really, really exploded. And people are applying, these as uh, kind of uh, an activism or an active approach in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Right. So look, we're seeing that it's becoming, you know, more prominent. People are using it as a terminology, you know, they're developing inactive approaches, you know, what that looks like. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, but like, let's say me and you are at a party, right? It would probably be a really boring, geeky party, right? <laughs> Where we're standing around, we're talking, we're drinking a dry white wine, you know, out of a, out of a paper cup. There's lots of highfalutin intellectual types around us, um, apart from me, of course. And uh, I turn around and say, oh, you're the famous Peter Stilwell. There's this concept of inactivism, and uh, I'm not sure I really get it. And you've got to remember, I've had a few wines by now. Um, so my cognition in itself is probably not as good as it should be. How would you turn around to, uh, and kind of start to explain some of the, the key aspects of inactivism to Drunken Ben at a rubbish party? Yeah, might have to go for a bag of wine. and <laughs> <laughs> A box. <laughs> Peter, yeah, a box but what of is it? Wine. The box of wine. Yeah. I don't know if you guys That's have very 80s, buddy. Very 80s. <laughs> box of wine. Um, but yeah, I guess to be honest, like I don't think I'd ever probably like explain or or discuss inactivism at a party. Like uh, I think inactivism contains like some of the most kind of challenging ideas and concepts I've ever engaged with. So if I'm at a party with you and we're having drinks, I'd probably kind of divert the conversation to talk about something else. And, yeah. um, but just, just play the game. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll do the best, but like, I think that's the challenge is like an activist will often say that they'll, they're like, you can't do justice um, to this kind of rich theoretical foundation. And this, uh, it intersects so many different fields. So um, it, you can't do justice to it by like just a brief little introduction and, I think what further kind of complicates things as I, as I already kind of mentioned is like, there's all these different kind of strands of an activism and there's a variety of different kind of debates that are ongoing. And I spent most of my, or much of my PhD trying to like learn about an activism. And I, I realized like I barely scratched the surface. Um, and so I am definitely not a, a, an expert, um, but I, I'm still learning about it and all it's kind of, it's different facets, but um 
I'll run with this idea and I'll try to paint a bit of a, a bit of a picture, uh, or at least one picture, one perspective. Um, so essentially, the idea is that an activism is this kind of complex set of uh, ideas and concepts related to cognition, related to the mind. Um, so uh, there's this kind of focus on perception and how we experience ourselves, how we experience our world, and it might be helpful to kind of paint like a little bit of like a historical foundation because an activist really started to push against traditional, uh, like more kind of traditional ways of understanding cognition, understanding the mind. So yeah. historically, a lot of people just thought that cognition or the mind could just be understood by uh, examining the brain. So kind of yeah. from like yeah. this, this third person perspective. And in many ways, this downplayed the role of the rest of the body, downplayed the role of the environment, downplayed the role yeah. of context. Yeah. Um, so people often kind of treated the brain like a computer. Um, so there was just a focus on these kind of internal mechanisms or, or computations. And then an activist came in and really pushed against that, that kind of uh, view of cognition, a view, that view of the mind. And um, they said, well, really, the mind isn't just in the brain. Um, so an activist recognized the importance of the brain, but they also have a strong focus on the rest of the body. Um, so an activist, uh, according to kind of the, the ideas that they, that they ascribe to, they suggest that the body shapes the mind or is almost like some people will say a part of the mind. So this is often referred to as embodied cognition. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, an activist draw from, from, from that field of work. And there's been lots of research in that area on, on embodied cognition. So if anybody's listening, the, the one person listening, you said <laughs> you don't get a lot of hits when we're talking about philosophy, but <laughs> if you just type in like uh, embodied cognition, put it in Google, put it in YouTube, uh, a variety of interesting videos, lots of cool kind of research studies exploring that concept. Um, so that's one kind of aspect of, of an activism or, or the inactive approach. But really what starts to to make it interesting is an activist also have this strong focus on, on action or perceived action possibilities. So yeah. the general idea, it, this is kind of abstract uh, when we start to first explore it, but the kind of general idea is that we enact or we, we bring forth significance or, or meaning by actively engaging in the environment. So that environment is, is, according to kind of most inactivists, it's both a physical environment, but a, a sociocultural environment as well. So overall, when we're starting to put these ideas together, uh, inactivists often argue that cognition is not simply a, a brain event, um, or the mind is not simply in the head. Um, instead, uh, cognition and the mind emerge from these processes distributed across the brain, body, and environment. So essentially, the cognition or the mind can't be located in this single part. Um, so an activist will often say that the mind or cognition is relational. Um, and this is where it gets really tricky. And so you're trying to explain this at a party and it's like, well, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> like what the mind I, is. I've got, I'm talking, I'm talking to the pretty girl now. Peter. Yeah. I'll turn my yeah. back. <laughs> You've already left. And that's why it's like, this is why it's so awful to like try to, try to introduce and people will say that even in papers like they're introducing an activism they're like in a single paper we can't do justice to the inactive approach and people even say like a whole book's not gonna get at all these ideas so it's super hard but like yeah you know. i mean i mean it seems like you know interestingly with with pain science it definitely seemed to be you know very much about the brain you know, yeah. for a period of time, it was it was this brain focused thing, you know, pain, you know, in the brain or no brain, no pain or, or, or all these other type of things that people talked about. And, you know, now what you're saying here about inactivism is really broadening the perspective. It's like, you know, you need to understand that everything, you know, physical, contextual, you know, um, philosophical environmental it is related to to that experience and i suppose that does make it very broad doesn't it <laughs> and that's the benefit but also the issue with it yeah, is like yeah, it is yeah. so broad and like how do you even like capture that like how do you describe that to somebody at a party so like i've been attracted to like some of the analogies that an activist have used so um 
Evan Thompson. So uh, I, I mentioned he is uh, one of the authors in the body mind. So introducing an active approach. So he's talked about in some of his work um, about this idea of like uh, a bird's flight. Um, so bear with me for a second. I, you might, you, I think <laughs> We're getting probably... deep, aren't we? I, I, I'm going to reach for a joint next at this party. <laughs> I need something to really get me in the mood now. You're going to, you're going you're gonna to need it. You're definitely going to need it um, for, for this one. But I want like I want to hear what you think. Like, does this make sense? Like, yeah. is, does this analogy make sense? Because like, can we kind of almost embody an activism in this in this in this analogy? So he says like, uh, if you want to if you want to learn about a bird's flight, like it doesn't make sense to just only look at the bird's wings, like uh, doing some sort of investigation of the bird's wings. Instead, you need to look at uh, the full bird. So that includes its wings, but then you also need to zoom out even further and look at how that bird is interacting in its environment. So in this situation, it would be the atmosphere and that relation between the bird and the atmosphere kind of brings forth, uh, what we'd call flight. Um, so yeah. it, it paints this more kind of holistic, holistic picture. And so we can apply that to cognition. We can apply it to the mind and say, well, if we only just look into the brain, does that really explain cognition or does that really explain the mind? And an activist would say, no, it's ex extremely important. The brain's necessary, but we need to look at these, uh, all these other features. So it's more of a, I hate the word holistic, but like a more holistic approach um, than maybe yeah. some other approaches. Yeah. I, I think when I first started and I made lots of people upset when I first started thinking a little bit more critically about pain science a number of years ago. And I think that's exactly what I, one of the things that, that was interesting for me is that neurobiology doesn't explain the pain experience. You know, it gives you some nuts and bolts or it helps you understand it from a biological mechanical perspective. You know that molecule. Uh, you know um, you, you get certain ion channels open and close, and they're gated, voltage, or you know thermally, or, or all these other things. That mechanics is universal across people, but mm -hmm. the same mechanics can happen. But two people have two different individual separate experiences. So the paint, the biology is quite similar, but mm -hmm. the experiences might be quite different. Does, does, does that make sense? And I, I think that's kind of a long, maybe a similar perspective that, that the mechanics of the bird don't tell you about how that bird experiences fly. Yeah, and I, I think you're, you're, you're exactly right there. Yeah, and it's like, uh, th that, that's the challenge is like, we want to have this kind of like reductionist uh, approach a lot of times, like look into these kind of cellular mechanisms, look into the neural pathways. And it's like, um, that's, that's important. Um, but does it fully paint this picture of experience? Um, and so, and a lot of an activist would say like, these things are context sensitive, the environment shapes the experience. So it's not just about the biology. Um, yeah. so, and we know that like the, the big boom in, uh, research on context and how it shapes the experience of pain. Like that's very in line with this kind of inactive thinking. Like, um, people can have the the exact same stimulus from kind of like this physiological standpoint. Um, yet the, the meanings of, of, of these experiences can change the way that the person experiences it, uh, yeah. that, that particular stimulus. It can shape the intensity of pain, uh, for example, either, either for good or for bad. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what I, you know, one of the key points I would say, that, that I get from inactivism is this idea of kind of embodiment. Mm -hmm. um, and almost that's a little bit kind of a, of a pushback against dualistic thinking, isn't it? Yeah. And we're, we're pretty dualistic thinking, both with pain, uh, you know, and also with psychology as well, it would seem. Yeah. And that's, what's attractive to me. Like with, that's why I kind of like dove into it. Like, uh, at first I was like, there's so much kind of like the, the language is difficult and the concepts are difficult and I'm still struggling with the literature, but like it did paint this very kind of like non-dualist, non-reductive approach to experience, a uh, non-reductive, non-dualist approach to perception. And I was like, that's what everybody's been want, like wanting to strive for. Um, but, but we haven't really had the theories and approaches to really get there. Um, so that's where I, I think it's interesting and offers a, a, a promising kind of avenue. Yeah. So you've kind of touched on it there in a little bit, but what really appeals to you um, about kind of 
inactivism? What what are the things that really, you know, get you out of bed in the morning for, for an, a day of inactivism? <laughs> uh, I do like, yeah, I'm involved in so, like all these different projects. And so I'm always doing like my side reading on, on uh, the new inactive papers and trying to keep up to date. But um, it was just that it was like, uh, I was looking at kind of current current pain theories and i was like what's missing um and i was like really attracted to the biopsychosocial model and i was like well what's the theoretical foundation of the biopsychosocial model and started reading Engel's work and then i was like um there's not a lot of information there um <laughs> about like his, his his underlying theory um not a strong folk he, he embraced subjectivity and embraced like the patient's narrative but not a lot um, uh, of kind of specific details and a theoretical foundation. So I was really drawn to this movement of phenomenology um, that really, that's the focus on experience, focus on consciousness. Um, and that's one of the foundations of inactivism. So I was just like, there's so many kind of concepts and theories and, and this kind of rich foundation that we can draw from. And so I just started to kind of explore all those. And it gave me a bit more uh, to kind of uh, think about than than I had with the biopsychosocial model. So that's what was really attractive to me as I as I was going through my PhD. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it does sound like a subject that it, it keeps on giving, isn't it? It's the gift that keeps on giving because there are probably so many. If if everything matters in or everything has a relation with everything else, um, I suppose there are lots of angles and. Uh, and different areas to explore and probably why you can take an, an inactive approach to different subject matters. So look, here we go. What would be an inactive approach to pain then? Why, you know, why would we need it above and beyond other approaches that we currently have in terms of pain? How does it help us understand pain uh, better? Yeah, I, I guess I kind of maybe alluded to it a little bit. Like, uh, it's just that kind of rich theoretical foundation related to human experience. So um, it has that kind of foundation in that philosophical movement of, of phenomenology. So there's over kind of a, a century of, of theory to draw from. So um, I, I was like, well, if we're talking about pain, if we're talking about perception um, or a subjective experience, we, we should really be talking about that, that literature on perception, that literature on subjectivity. And so, so that's what really drew me to it. And, um, and, and that was what I saw as like a kind of a limitation of the biopsychosocial model where I was like, and, and, and some of Ingle's work where I was like reading the papers and I'm like, wanted to learn more about like, lived experience wanted to learn more about how people can experience their bodies in different ways how people can feel like alienation uh thing, th things like that and i wasn't really getting that from from the the bps uh literature so that's what drew me to the inactive literature that really kind of dives in on the interesting ways that people experience their their body in the world and uh clearly kind of uh there's applications to pain so that's what that's what's been attractive to me yeah, yeah. The, the the pains i mean i think it's really important you know the the pain science that that kind of has, has come out of places like australia um with you people like you laura mosley's etc you know obviously is really fantastic work but has it focused quite a lot on you know uh, quite an, a narrow area you know it's very much trying to quantify you know pain intensity through varying contexts you know you change a context whether that's a stimulus or a light that goes off or something else and it tells us that this subjective perception of pain alters you know when we're going to measure that often through you know a basic pain score is it higher is it lower um mm. but is there still quite a lot that needs to be explored with regards to a wider understanding of pain you know because it doesn't it tells us that that pain is contextual but it doesn't tell us quite how contextual maybe yeah yeah and i think like people like inactive thinkers like Seneca Dehan talks about this idea of kind of zooming in or or zooming out. Um, yeah. So it depends on kind of our, our 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 question that we have. Like it can be appropriate to do these scientific investigations where we're zooming zooming in. But yeah, yeah. we're talking about the experience of of pain. 
we should probably also, uh, it should be on our radar zooming out as well. So looking at that full person and their environment and um, how that, that interaction can, can bring forth uh, meaning and the experience of pain. So it, it, it's, it's tough though, because like people like Sean Gallagher, so he's a big kind of figure in, the, in active literature. He says like, it's fr- it can be frustrating for clinicians because you are saying like, you need to now appreciate all these different things. Yeah, um, yeah. You can't just have this really narrow focus. Um, but he's like, that's also a benefit because then yeah. we can harness teamwork. We can take different expertise, uh, like levels of expertise and bring it together and um, do our best to, to navigate the, the patient's uh, unique experience and, and, and set them on the right path. So um, it, it definitely is more aligned with this kind of like team-based approach to healthcare, but yeah, as you know, that's that comes with its challenges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and are you, are you, I can understand why for clinicians, young and old, it can be challenging because suddenly, you know, you've gone from learning about pathology and you know that that's what causes pain, and you know it's a fairly basic relationship between your tendinopathy and the pain that you experience. And for some people, it's going to be very very simple and other people more complex you know in terms of uh, the person experiencing it but you can see why it's challenging to go from this simpler understanding suddenly to like everything matters in a contextual way and it's almost you, you sometimes you need uh, uh, to be able to have that in a in, in a in a usable framework where, where do you think we can go with that you know, having more of a, you know, where's the application is what I'm asking. It doesn't have to be one, but maybe I think that's an important question that also needs to be addressed as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, the challenge is like, uh, I really like the work of, of Seneca Dehan. She's like, what is like, does this an active approach just mean like anything goes, everything matters. And she's like, well, no, definitely not. We still need we still need uh, scientific investigations. We still need trials. We still need these studies uh, to explore these kind of different facets of, of the pain experience. And um, really kind of the, the aim would be to work with the patient to explore like, um, what, like first off, addressing and validating their, their unique concerns, exploring their narratives, um, but looking at kind of maybe the different ways that we could uh, open up their possibilities for action. Um, so oftentimes an activist will use Use the, the concept of affordances. Um, yeah. So I've I've know you you've definitely explored that in maybe different different ways, like constraints based therapy or kind of affordance based therapy, and and we could talk a bit about that. Um, uh, but but that's what kind of an active uh, thinkers are, are kind of going towards when they talk about clinical application is like this idea of like. Uh, opening up action possibilities, yeah. uh, working to gain, kind of increase affordances, that, that those type of ideas, yeah. Because yeah, I'm going to be honest, I, I'm not a big fan of the word affordances, yeah. um, simply being because I like the concept, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's clinically plain language, you know, and that's that's just my personal feeling. So, you, you know, anyone out there who loves it can, can completely disregard <laughs> that. I don't care, you don't care, let's just move on. Um, but how else could we term it? Could we call it opportunities? Yeah, action, action possibilities. Yeah, so, possibilities, um, opportunities, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I like, uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't be talking to a patient. I don't see patients right, right now, but, like, I wouldn't be, like, <laughs> talking to them about affordances. So this is more of, like, uh, a theoretical kind of framework concepts that would guide clinical practice. A hundred percent, you know, and I think that when you are you working – for in an academic environment, writing academic papers, you use the words and the terminology that fit with the audience and fit with the concepts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think what we're starting to see, though, is coming outside of that, people trying to apply it to clinical practice. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe it becomes more intuitive to a clinician to think about a concept of certainly affordances but also maybe that could be described as as an opportunity for 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 you know action or a possibility or and i think that fits really nicely with a person focused approach because you know a role of clinicians is to sit with someone and provide new opportunities new affordances for this person to to feel better and get well you know and if we're talking about in in the environment that someone's in, you know, it, it might be about helping someone to realise what support groups there are around us. It yeah. might be about where can they go and exercise if they have a low income and it's a it's a free 
situation? What what social opportunities are out there for people to to help them get better? Um, and I love the concept. I just hate the bloody word. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a it's such a hard yeah. And uh, so I, I recently did a. Uh, Sabrina, uh, Dr. Sabrina Konings out of Germany. So she led a paper. I was fortunate to be able to work with her on a paper on affordances in relation yeah, to yeah, I've read it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's like a philosophical paper. Yeah. It's, it's super dense using the, the field specific language, but if I think you hit on it really nicely, it's like, well, what is, what is the goal of rehab? Um, what, what, what are we really doing? Really? Most of the, our focus usually is to open up action possibilities to work yeah. towards a patient's, uh, a person's meaningful goals. And uh, I think not everybody thinks that way. So I think a lot of times you'll want to focus on fixing the body or focusing yeah, on the yeah. impairment or making the person yeah. move a certain way. And it's like, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah. What can I as a clinician do to this person rather yeah. than what opportunities can, you know, it's not, it's almost just it, it's helping people being aware of resources that, that can be around them. Um, and I, I suppose maybe one of the problems is that's not in the job title. It's not in the role. You can't charge for that through insurance and things like that, which, you know, which gets ugly, doesn't it? Because it, it almost becomes something extra that you add on rather than something that's an intrinsic part of helping people, you know, in the current system. Yeah. And I think it's such an kind of abstract idea too. There's so many ways that you could potentially yeah. open yeah. up a person's kind of field of affordances, kind of the more technical yeah. term, but like, yeah, like you said, like you could do focus on more kind of like sociocultural interventions or modify the environment in certain ways. Um, it changed the task. Uh, there's so many different ways that you can, shape a person's field of affordances and move them in kind of a, uh, uh, a certain way or, or, or a certain direction without explicitly uh, providing education. Um, so it's, it's kind of a complex topic or complex uh, idea to navigate. Yeah. I, I suppose one of the issues is sometimes opening up affordances for people or opportunities for people. You're not actually taking the action, are you? And I think that can be difficult sometimes. You're just kind of pointing in the direction, and sometimes you never actually know whether that actually happened or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're more of a guider than a fixer, yeah. right? And like, yeah. I saw an Instagram video with you the other day with uh, you were like, not the naked one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know about that. Was it on the dark web or the normal web? <laughs> no, 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 normal web. Um, but but yeah, you were like, I, 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 I don't, th I'm trying to remember. I think you were taking like uh, a box and moving it around in different yeah. ways and getting a person to kind of come up with their own movement solutions. So you weren't yeah. actually giving them like a lot of explicit direction or cues. You were more just shaping the environment and letting their own kind of movement solutions emerge. And that's really this idea of uh, fiddling with affordances, I think in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose you, I, 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 you know, this goes back to, there was a guy called New, New, Newell, Newell back in the eighties. And, and he had this idea of constraints. And then there's this other guy, Chow, who started to talk about nonlinear um, pedagogy, pedagogy, depending on where you are in the world. Um, yeah. and, and it's just an, just a different way of, of, of teaching people. You know, it's not about explicit instructions. It's not about giving people the answers or, you know, it's more about prescribing the problem. And if you prescribe the problem, then there might be a number of different individual solutions um, that arise. But again, that's part of, of the problem that we have in, in, in kind of, you know, whether you're a chiro or a physio, you know, you can't, you're not really meant to just let the answers arise, are you? You're meant to say, I know what the problem is. Here's the fix. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the challenge, but um, yeah, like Carl Newell's work, like super interesting. And like people have applied it a lot in research, like to performance, um, yeah. like looking at like sports performance. Yeah. Um, but like not a lot of people have focused on pain uh, and focused on the experience. So that's what uh, I think Dr. Koenig's really brought to the table with uh, that paper is like bringing this uh, idea of affordances in the context of pain. Um, Cause there's lots of research on like performance and coaching and that type of stuff, but yeah, we've, yeah. we haven't really focused on that lived experience element uh, as much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that Chow was a physical education teacher 
the guy who did this non-linear uh, uh, pedagogy type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're, you're comp- I'll tell you what interested me, actually, and I, I started teaching and talking about this stuff quite a long time ago, um, was the whole idea of pain and movement variability. And actually, yep. there was lots of Paul Hodges' work that looked at, you know, kind of how uh, I think he's got a paper called "Moving Differently in Pain," and it mm-hmm. says, you know, actually, when you have when you're in pain, you, you know, you move differently. And one of the one of the signifiers of that moving differently is a reduction in this mm-hmm. variability, and that takes you down the rabbit hole of kind of dynamical systems theory and and all these other things. Uh, and, and actually, I I really like that approach, that explorative approach when I think about movement, exercise, and pain, and I suppose that's been most of my career, actually. Um, but it really, it hasn't caught on, has it, really? It's still, you know, when we look at these things, it's still prescribing the solution and not sometimes exploring the problem. Yeah, I think there is that trend, though, towards, like, experiential learning, though. Like, and, and like, that's oh, yeah, even, in, even, in, even in education, right, where it's like, we used to just think, oh, we could take this didactic approach and just be like, here's the answers, or work in the clinic and be like, here's your problem, this is what you need to do, and uh, we can change your experience that way. But um, this movement towards, like, uh, focusing on action and action possibilities, experiential learning. So getting the person to actually engage in movements um, and, and shape their experience in, in new, different ways. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's very in line with this kind of inactive line yeah. of thinking, this idea of focusing on action, yeah. So I have said for, for, for quite a, a long time now, it, you know, it, I think one of the big problems with pain education is that it focused on the information and didn't focus very much on the experience. And mm-hmm. we probably need a combination of the, you know, I think that we sometimes look at knowledge around pain as being a good marker of pain education. Mm-hmm. I actually think engagement in movement and activities and things that we don't like to do would be the best measure of pain education. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because it's actually changing behaviour, not just knowing about pain. Uh, and I think maybe that falls into a, a more inactive kind of model. For sure. And I think that that kind of action is is quite a powerful learning tool. So yeah. people often like the idea of like predictive, predictive processing and um, violating expectations. A lot of people talk about that. I know you, I know you've talked about that and it's like yeah. very in line with this kind of inactive thinking. So getting people to uh, experience different, different movements in new ways. And maybe uh, it, they don't get the outcomes that they expected. The, they're not getting the, the massive flare up. They're not damaging themselves or injuring themselves. And that can be quite powerful. So you can maybe yeah. tell a person like, you're not going to damage yourself, but to actually get them to actually experience that and say, Hey, this movement actually isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But Um, I think where we've fallen down a little bit, and I use a very large, we, not just me and you, I mean, I've fallen down in lots of ways in lots of places. (laughs) Um, But I think that what we don't appreciate enough, and again, this probably falls into an inactive perspective, is contextualism. You know, is that I think that we think that sometimes generic actions, like lifting something heavy, is going to create a generic, you know, some just someone jumps up and does a cartwheel and says, oh, my God, I'm fixed because I picked <laughs> up a heavy box. Um, and I think sometimes our approaches have been even to, to something that should be contextual have sometimes been a little prescriptive, um, mm-hmm. which I think probably takes us closer towards inactivism. But to really be inactive, I think you've got to, you know, really be thinking about that N equals one, you know, uh, rather than this kind of I, that, that to me is where things have fallen down a bit with these, you know, mm-hmm. exposure based approaches is, is that. I don't think one size fits all. And I don't think that fits with the spirit of what we're talking about. Yeah, I I love it. Yeah, I I fully agree. And yeah, considering the context and getting people to like, I think that aligns with like self-management strategies, supported self-management. So getting the person to uh, explore things in different contexts and um, yeah, to kind of kind of see metaphorically see new action possibilities. So yeah, uh, and that might have to be done in their environment. Yep. You know, when it comes to exposure, my example I always use, and I think it's probably a a crappy example, is, you know, you don't get over a fear of a spider by being exposed to a pineapple. Do you you see what I mean? So so someone someone has back pain, just doing a deadlift is not suddenly going to mean that, you know, they're, 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 uh, 
their kind of perception of, of using their back is going to change in all these different contexts, especially if the major context that they have problem with isn't reflected in what we're what we're trying to do. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes we see it just my my point is we just see it a little bit too generically. Whereas I think the true spirit is definitely embodiment and action, but also that coupled with, you know, a, a real contextualism. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I guess, yeah, don't get me wrong. I've definitely made so many mistakes and have been very kind of like reductionist and very kind of like almost cookie cutter, especially when I first started in clinical practice. So it's not like, uh, yeah, I, I definitely went down those bad, bad, maybe yeah. not so optimal paths and I'm learning. Yeah. But uh, look, I don't, I, I, but I suppose you could also say on a spectrum of change, some move towards action is better than no move towards action so so <laughs> yeah. you, you know so I, I don't i don't think that they're i just think that when we're dealing with very contextual things we have to be probably pretty contextual to have the effect that we desire yeah i i, I love it and yeah reading through the inactive literature that seems to be like a, a recurring kind of theme is like appreciating context and how that shapes that person's lived experience and, and shapes shapes meaning so um that seems to be quite a core core kind of theme in in the work yeah so do you think that inactivism sits nicely with a, a person-centered approach? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm, I guess it depends probably how you define person-centered approach. Well, don't get all technical on me. Me uh, and Peter have been down these rabbit holes too many times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. So yeah. some of, one of, so I, I'm, I don't do like really much work on like inactive stuff these days as a part of my, my postdoc. It's more, focus on person-centered care and, yeah, and yeah. pain-related suffering. So, yeah, that, I went down that rabbit hole, too, of what's person-centered care, and I'm, I'm still exploring that, yeah. Well, I suppose to be truly person-centered has to be a flexible concept, right? I, I, would, I would imagine so, yeah. Or yeah. at least it has to be implemented in a flexible way, yeah. Yeah, although I'd <laughs> yeah. say maybe the one, the one thing that I think potentially goes across lots of different people and i think i picked this up from from you know talking to people with pain and also reading the literature mm -hmm. it, it's definitely the concept of, of kind of validation of their experience that does seem to be a really strong theme i don't know if you've kind of seen that along the way as well yeah 100 percent, time and time again so and i think that's the value of qualitative literature it's to really put that on the radar it's like Time and time again, people are saying they're experiencing persistent pain. They feel like they're not listened to. They feel like they're being told their pain isn't real. They feel like their uh, the life impact of their pain isn't fully explored. Um, so huge issue. Yeah. So would you describe that as a theme? Uh, like, I, what do you mean? Like, well, I uh, suppose in qualitative literature, you're looking for themes, aren't you? <laughs> so, I, so I got gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think some people have like labeled that as like a, a prominent theme in their in their qualitative work and uh, a theme of uh, what it's like to to engage in that clinical encounter when you're seeking care for for pers persistent pain. So people are frustrated; they feel stigmatized. So that that commonly comes out as kind of a, a recurring theme, and I think in a lot of the qual literature. And uh, you certainly know that. I, I know you've talked about that quite a bit. Yeah. So where do you go next, Peter? What's your what's the next cut and thrust of your uh, research career what's burning your candle what's dipping your wick yeah um so, so yeah i've been still kind of exploring these kind of inactive ideas on on the side and i want to like uh, i'm involved with a group and we're going to try to like take this con the complex ideas that i struggled to kind of relay today and we're going to try to turn them into something that's a bit more clinician clinician friendly a bit more usable um so i'm, I'm going to be involved with that um but most of my work is focused on uh how people have kind of conceptualized person-centered care uh and the different frameworks that are out there for person-centered care and uh a lot of my work has been focused on uh, pain related suffering so what suffering is um and so hopefully we'll have uh some papers out and in the future on that so yeah yeah, I think that's a really fascinating subject and kind of ties in very much with something that we've talked a lot about over the years, which is the biopsychosocial model, um, yep. which is, you know, I, I think we definitely need more on um, understanding the impact of pain, not just, you know, pain contributors. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, that's like, yeah, bi-directional, right? So like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, ch- ch- challenging, challenging stuff to explore, but yeah, fully agree. Excellent. Well, Peter, it's been a real pleasure um, to, to talk to you. Um, where can people find you if they need you? If someone was, uh, had a burning desire to, to hunt you down, Peter, where could they find you? <laughs> After listening to this, they'll be like, no, or they would, nobody was still listening. So You are going to be invited <laughs> to so many parties now. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely not. But um, yeah, I'm not really that active on like social media or anything, but I, I do use Twitter from time to time. So I'm on there. I think it's uh, Peter underscore Stillwell. So S-T-I-L-W-E-L-L. So I try to post like when I when I have papers, I try to post them on there, uh, share other kind of interesting papers on there. Um, I'm not as active as you are on there. I always appreciate the, the interesting ideas and the questions you pose to people. And I sometimes I want to engage, but then I'm just like, uh, I'm, I'm I'm not good at it. So um, I'm on there every once in a while, though. Oh, this is all I've this is all I've got, buddy. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I, I'm a fast paced kind of. I just throw ideas out and then see what happens. Nothing really ever goes anywhere. But you know, they're they're, they're I'm you, you, sometimes they may you know uh, interest people along the way. But uh, for for our listeners, hopefully. Peter, myself, and the wonderful Joe Gibson have got uh, a paper coming out. It's been locked in research purgatory at the moment, being (laughs) torn apart by whoever, anonymous uh, people. And I I must say, I I really enjoyed working with you both on that. And I learned absolutely loads uh, from you as well. Yeah, same to you. And I really like that paper. Like, uh, I think it just it offers a lot, so hopefully it sees the light of day soon. And um, it was really fun, fun working on it. Yeah. Well, if it, you know, if someone doesn't choose to put it out, we'll just do it ourselves. We'll just do it on one of these pre-print, you know, type of situations. See what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm game for whatever. So I'm not really a good acad- <laughs> like a good academic. Like, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm open to different options. Yeah, I, I don't think if anyone allowed me into the world of academia, which would just never happen, I don't think I'd be a good academic either. Actually, so that would make two of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I really right. appreciate uh, talking talking with you today. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. So wonderful. To- talking to you i will probably talk to you very soon without everyone else listening (laughs) sounds good cheers buddy see ya thanks you have been listening to the core kinetic podcast thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time